Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report for February 26, 2024. I'm Phil Epler. China's economic problems seem to be numerous. They include falling consumer prices, a struggling stock market, plunging property values, sluggish growth, rising debt. Is current Chinese leadership to blame for these problems, or is it something deeper? Confluence Advisory Director Bill O'Grady joins us today to discuss why addressing that question is important. Bill, the way I understand it, there are basically two camps on this issue. What are they? Well, one camp, represented by Adam Posen, suggests that the problem is General Secretary Xi. He postulates essentially that everything was fine until Xi moved away from market reforms. On the other side is Michael Pettis, who suggests that the problem is China has maintained an investment-export model of development that has exhausted its usefulness. How can the answer to this question of what is responsible for China's economic problems guide U.S. foreign policy? Well, if if Posen's correct, then the U.S. policy goal should be to do everything possible to see Xi removed. Given that we probably won't engage in direct methods to remove him, that may mean waiting him out or engaging in policies to try to thwart his efforts to reshape the economy. If Pettis is correct, then the U.S. should focus more on encouraging China to shift away from investment and exports and toward consumption. The tariffs implemented by the Trump administration and maintained by his successor, along with the Biden administration's restrictions on semiconductors, is a step in that direction. Without exports, the current Chinese model will fail. Posen has argued this is exactly the wrong approach. What we need to be doing is more economic integration. And why should investors care about the reasons for the Chinese economic problems? Well, if Posen's right, we just need to see Xi off or change his ways back to the pre-2012 policies. Investors then would expect Chinese equities to recover sharply. If Pettis is right, there is no easy way out. The asset bubbles we have seen in Chinese real estate are a prime example of what happens when you keep an investment development model in place for too long. The Pettis position is that China is either staring down a situation similar to the U.S. in the 1930s or Japan in the 1990s. In either case, investors should be very cautious. Well, let's spend some time in the camp of those who feel that the problems are linked to the natural progression of the Chinese economy, keeping the investment development model in place for too long, and less about how the country and its leader handled the pandemic. How has this natural progression unfolded? Well, if this position is correct, you should see increased malinvestment, rising debt levels with persistent debt servicing problems and slowing growth. In fact, it takes increasing levels of debt just to maintain current growth levels. And this is exactly what we have observed. I guess another way to look at it is that the economy in China has progressed to the point where Chinese consumers don't spend enough to sustain economic growth and exports can no longer take up the slack. Well put. When Britain faced this problem in the 1800s, it expanded its colonies. Imperialism is one way to address this problem. You can essentially force colonies to absorb your excess production and prevent them from developing their own industry. The Belt and Road Project that China has instigated is a modern-day attempt to duplicate imperialism. How have other countries, Bill, which followed similar economic timelines throughout history, dealt with this issue? Well, we mentioned imperialism, 
Another way is to move up the value chain. This is a bit of what Germany did. It moved from making Volkswagens to BMWs, but it also backdoored into imperialism with the creation of the Eurozone. The U.S. addressed this issue with the Great Depression, where asset values were allowed to collapse. It was incredibly painful, but it did get the debt repriced. War is another answer. If you use your excess capacity for war and hope to destroy the excess capacity of your enemies, forcing them into a colonial position, finally there is the slow motion depression which Japan did after 1990. You slow economic growth to allow asset prices to adjust over a long period of time. Bill, how do you feel about the argument that current Chinese leadership caused or helped create these economic problems? Well, Posen is partially correct in his assessment that Xi has made things worse. The Communist Party of China is Leninist. That model works in a top-down fashion, thus requiring the cadres to have instructions from the top. Xi has removed the growth-at-all-costs goal, which characterized the period from Deng to Hugh, but he has not settled on a replacement. Thus, the cadres don't know what to do, and so they do nothing. This lack of direction has exacerbated the problem. How has Chinese leadership tried to solve the problem? That's a great question. Xi has shifted the country to a national security stance, making it seemingly the most important goal of government. However, how national security gets defined is a moving target. We've seen purges. We've seen changes in emphasis with regards to economic self-sufficiency. But there has been no sustained effort to address Pettis' position, and therein lies the problem. Bill, are there any indications that Chinese leadership might eventually push reforms that do put more money in the hands of families? Doesn't appear so. She seems to think that the solution is for people to eat bitterness, which suggests that they should endure a reduction in their standard of living. Does current U.S. policy on semiconductors and broader trade policy in general significantly deepen China's economic woes? Well, clearly it does, but it doesn't necessarily have to. She could use the export restrictions as an excuse to shift towards domestic consumption, but there's no evidence this is being done. Bill, do you think we should applaud China's problems, or, or could those problems cause the country to become more aggressive militarily? Well, it always begs the question, what exactly are we applauding? Based on envy alone, there's an incentive to view China's economics problems with glee. And I think underlying Posen's criticism is the belief that the neoliberal program of globalism is best, and if she simply wants to get with the program, all would be better. If Pettis is right, the world has to figure out how to adjust to much slower growth in China. That outcome will create winners and losers. Commodity producers, for example, could suffer. As we noted, one response to an end of the investment-driven development model is war. Nuclear weapons have reduced this impact to some extent. There's always the wag the dog worry, but a slowing economy won't necessarily make China more aggressive. Bill, Confluence Investment Management believes the world is dividing into separate geopolitical and economic groups. How do China's economic problems fit within this broad picture? Well, as China's economy suffers, it probably does accelerate the move toward blocks. But it's not the primary issue. Block development is more driven by China's need to insulate itself from the dollar system. The slowing economy matters, but block emergence was likely even if China's growth was improving. Thank you, Bill.
Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. And this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.